1: Welcome to today's episode of Myeloma Crowd Radio, a show that connects patients with myeloma researchers. I'm your host, Jenny Alstrom. Now, today is the first show in a series of three on Myeloma Crowd Radio for the Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative, or the MCRI, as we call it. When we started the foundation, we asked our scientific advisory board what we could do to fill gaps in research funding. The first time we did this, they unanimously said, fund high-risk research. So we did a global call for proposals to find the best high-risk projects. We received 36 proposals globally and narrowed that to two that we could fund. We'd like to thank everybody for their family members, caregivers, and friends that helped contribute because we raised $500,000 for these projects, and 100% of every dollar donated was given to the researchers. The first was a CAR-T therapy from the University of Würzburg going after two CAR-T cell targets, CS1 and BCMA. And the, the second was an immunotherapy called MILS from Dr. Yvonne Borello, who's an eminent immunologist in myeloma. The next year we asked the same question, what should we be doing to fill gaps? Because there are a lot of good organizations out there already doing wonderful things. And one of the doctors suggested with all the new treatments, patients could use a tool to help them identify treatment options they could consider, especially if they were being seen in the local oncology setting. So based on this feedback, we developed the HealthTree tool, With HealthTree, there are three things that patients can do. First, understand personalized treatment options they can consider to have better discussions with their doctor. Second, find clinical trials that we're eligible to join. And third, we can share our myeloma story anonymously with other patients and researchers to help identify faster cures. We're so excited and thrilled that this new tool is working. Over the summer, we canvassed the country in 50 cities to share the tool with over 800 patients and now over 2,100 patients are using HealthTree, and we're so excited to be sharing some of this data shortly. If you'd like to join HealthTree, you can go to HealthTree.org and create a patient profile. Now, our focus for the second Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative is complementary to what we've built with HealthTree. We heard um, from several doctors that a small fraction of patients could possibly be cured, so we want to know who they are and how they're achieving success so it can be replicated the second Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative is focusing on optimizing myeloma care because so much can be done to lengthen life with today, if today's drugs are applied for the right patient at the right order at the right time. We've asked all three projects that we're funding to integrate in some way with our Health Tree project. So there are some important questions. You know, do patient outcomes, are they only related to myeloma genetics? Could it be something else like their immune system status or cells that persist after intensive treatment like transplant? So why are we all so unique and how can we select treatments so we live as long as possible individually with myeloma with an ultimate goal of of finding a cure? So now we've selected three projects for this second MCRI, each with a unique take on these questions, and today we are pleased to announce three winners. Dr. David Chung from Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center, who we will hear from today on his work to create an immune system signature for patients. Dr. Cesar Rodriguez of Wake Forest University, who is working on a new platform called Organoid 3D Tumor Modeling to test myeloma treatment combinations against your individual tumor, including your bone marrow microenvironment. And Dr. Frank Zahn of the University of Iowa, who is doing work to identify myeloma stem cells that could persist after treatment and be the cause of relapse. We'll be funding these projects for a total of another half million dollars or more and invite you to join us. You can go to give.crowdcare.org forward slash MCRI, and create an individual or team fundraising page. Then share it in any way you want. You can join a local walk or run and share your page, share your page next Tuesday on Giving Tuesday on social media, or share it during the holidays as a way people can support you in your efforts to speed up a cure for myeloma. You can share it by email, Twitter, Facebook, or your other social media accounts because your friends and family want to know how to support you many times, and this is an excellent way of doing that. The end of the year is when the majority of donations are made, so we just encourage you to create your page and share. And with that, we'd like to welcome our guest, Dr. David Chung, on today's program. We have a lot to learn from him today, so Dr. Chung, welcome.
0: Thank you, and hello, everyone.
1: It was um, kind of a longer introduction than we usually have, but this is a big kickoff to the MCRI, and we're so thrilled that um, we're able to award you with funding for this project. Uh, Let me introduce you a little bit before we get started with questions. Um, Dr. David Chung is a member of the Cellular Therapeutic Center and assistant member of the Bone Marrow Transplant Service at Memorial Sloan-Kettering Cancer Center and assistant professor of medicine at Yale Cornell Medical College, as well as assistant attending physician at the Rockefeller University Hospital. He performed his medical degree and Ph.D. at Georgetown University, his fellowship and postdoc at Memorial Sloan-Kettering, and another fellowship at YL Cornell. His research is focused on the development of immunotherapies for cancer with a focus on cellular therapies. One of his distinct goals is to create an immune system signature for patients to help with the development of new dendritic cell-based vaccines and other immunotherapies like checkpoint inhibitors or CAR-T treatments in myeloma. His awards include a Young Investigator Award from ASCO, the Mortimer Lacher Fellowship from the Lymphoma Foundation, and Translational New Investigator Award from the Department of Defense. He received a clinical investigation award for his dendritic cell work post transplant, and I hope we can incorporate some of that today as as we talk. So, with the introduction, we're ready for some questions for you, Dr. Chung. Maybe you can just start out by giving us a broad assessment of what's what's the role of the immune system in fighting multiple myeloma.
0: Sure. Uh, first I would just like to thank you again for the kind introduction and also thank you very much for the generous support for our research. Um, In terms of your first question about the role of the immune system in fighting myeloma, uh, we know that the immune system helps control myeloma and that compromised or impaired immunity contributes to the development of active myeloma and progression. For instance, um, studies have shown that T-cells which are a type of white blood cell that helps fight cancer, can, can recognize myeloma cells in patients who have active disease and that the levels of these cells correlate with the amount of disease that a patient has. Also, we know that increased numbers of T cells that can recognize or are specific for myeloma cells after autologous stem cell transplantation and also after um, allogeneic stem cell transplantation, which is the kind where you get stem cells from a donor, in the, both of those situations, if you have increased numbers of T cells, patients tend to have better outcomes. In contrast to that, when, um, when there's a loss of myeloma-specific T cells, um, and that's been described um, during progression from the but not the benign precursor condition for myeloma called MGUS or monoclonal gammopathy of undetermined significance, um, we see that uh, there is a loss during that process. Also, myeloma cells cells themselves can also evade the immune system by different mechanisms, including mechanisms that put the brakes on the immune response. So overall, this provides rationale for developing or pursuing uh, immune-based therapies to stimulate or restore Um, anti-myeloma immunity in patients to improve outcomes. Um, Of course, a key step in developing immune-based treatments is to better understand the changes in the immune system at different stages of disease. Um, And it's been proposed that there are differences in immune fitness, if you will, between patients um, who do well versus those who don't, and that um, this difference influences how myeloma progresses um how it responds to standard treatments and and also the patterns of relapse and progression
1: and is that why sometimes older patients might be more prone to getting myeloma because at some level their immune system's getting weaker
0: uh, i that's, that's a that's a hypothesis in general for cancer. We know that as we age, one of the the downfalls of aging is that our immune systems tend not to be as robust, and so that could be a contributing factor.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a, this is a fascinating topic to be able to help identify that. I, I had a question also about when you mentioned myeloma and T, uh, T cells that are myeloma-specific T cells,
0: mm-hmm. what are
1: those, and what do those look like?
0: So when we say that a, a T cell is specific for myeloma, what we're talking about is, um, well, so we need to understand how the immune system works. So um, when... Something foreign comes into the body, for instance. Um, The immune system has the capacity to recognize something that shouldn't be around. And then in response to that, a series of very complicated things happen, and the immune system eventually um, triggers the the soldiers of the immune system, which include the T-cells, to uh, eradicate cells that have certain markers on their surfaces that that make them um, distinct from other cells. And so when we say that there are, and then also the immune system, in addition to its basic role in terms of fighting infection, we know that the immune system also has the ability to keep cancer at bay and that over time in patients who eventually develop cancer, something goes awry and the ability of the immune system to to keep things capped is lost. And that contributes to the progression. Um, And then when we're talking about T-cells that are specific for myeloma, um, what we're talking about are specific cells that have the capacity to recognize certain markers that are on myeloma cells and that they can recognize them and they can kill those cells.
1: Okay. That makes a lot of sense because when when something foreign comes in, your body is essentially... Um, taught to recognize it and then go after it correct and right, so you 've done a lot of work on the immune system and immunotherapies and on dendritic cell vaccines and things like that. Can you just give some background about your work in general so people know um, understand where you're coming from?
0: sure um, so as you as you mentioned in the introduction, the, the, a major goal of my research is to understand the immune system in cancer patients so that we can make more informed decisions about rational um, approaches to immune-based treatments for, for cancer, specifically myeloma in my case, and um, also uh, optimizing vaccine-based therapies. And so when I, my work on the immune system started during fellowship here at Memorial when I joined the laboratory of James Young, who is also a member of the transplant service, And at that time, Jim's lab was exploring how to make cancer vaccines using dendritic cells, uh, which are a special type of white blood cell critical to turning on and controlling immune responses. The lab at that time was studying the biology of different types of dendritic cells, because there's more than one type. And that was done to figure out the best ways to fine-tune cancer vaccines and make them more effective. When I joined the lab, my initial project was focused on understanding important regulatory pathways in human dendritic cells, again, with the ultimate goal of improving dendritic cell-based immunotherapy. And one of the first things we showed when I was in the lab was that um, a specific subtype of dendritic cell called the monocyte-derived dendritic cell, I'm trying to avoid too much technicality, but I need to <laughs> include some of the terminology. No, Um, But these monocyte-derived dendritic cells are the most common subtype of dendritic cell that's used in vaccine therapies for cancer. And these particular subtypes of dendritic cells have high levels of an enzyme called indolamine-2,3-dioxygenase, or IDO, that can actually counteract an immune response. And under normal conditions, having this enzyme around is important to serve as a brake to prevent uncontrolled immunity that could cause damage to our normal healthy tissue. But in situations like cancer, where you want a sustained immune response against a tumor, then potentially blocking IDO, this enzyme, is one way to boost a vaccine effect. So that was my initial project in the lab. And then, as mentioned, there's more than one type of dendritic cell, cell, and our lab also showed that a different type of dendritic cell called a Langerhans-type dendritic cell, or LC, um, can trigger stronger immune responses than the more commonly used monocyte-derived dendritic cell. And so that provided rationale for using the LCs in some of our our most recent vaccine studies, which um, there are two. And then um, also another thing that's important is that when a cancer vaccine is being designed, one of the key factors is choosing um what you're going to target on a cancer cell. So cancer cells as I I mentioned have markers that distinguish them uh sometimes not always, but uh markers that distinguish them from other cells in the body. And the scientific term for this type of cell marker is antigen. Um the more unique or rare these markers are, the better because you want a tar- you want to target something that is not expressed um commonly or is only very rarely expressed by normal cells because you don't want to cause harm you don't want your immune system to attack normal cells and then um mm-hmm. once you've identified a marker or antigen then you need to figure out how you're going to deliver that antigen to the dendritic cell so that it can use that to teach the immune system what to attack and um, the most common approach in vaccine therapy has been to pick a short fragment of a marker and give that to the dendritic cell. In a sense, you're betting that the fragment that you've chosen will be enough to generate a good immune response. And mm-hmm. um, there are limits to that, as you can imagine. And so we've been exploring other alternative approaches to this, and we've um, decided to uh, um, pursue an approach called mRNA electroporation. Uh, Again, I don't want to get too technical with this approach, but instead of providing just a fragment of the target antigen, um, using this alternative approach, you're providing the entire antigen so that the dendritic cell can show multiple parts or fragments to the immune system to get a more complete immune response. And Um, So using this method of antigen delivery when making a vaccine showed better results when compared with the more traditional approach that I mentioned in in our preclinical tests. And for this reason, we've used this mode or method of antigen delivery in our most recent vaccine studies. One was a study, a dendritic cell study for skin cancer melanoma, and the other uh, was for myeloma. And then... um, not to be too long-winded, but another area of study that we've been looking at more recently is how the immune system recovers after transplant and what the immune system looks like when patients relapse after transplant. This is important because the development of rational immune-based treatments after transplant requires a full understanding of the post-transplant immune environment. In other words, it's really important to understand the status of the different components of the immune system. Are the cells that are there functional? Has the relative balance of cells changed in a way that might hinder an immune response, et cetera, things like that. Um, so we recently published a study where we showed that there was um, first that there was preservation or maintenance of dendritic cell and T cell function um, after transplant, and we did that by taking sam- blood samples from patients and identifying these cells and showing that they they were the pro- they looked um, as expected under uh, with a test called flow cytometry, and that they also have, um, were intact functionally. And then we also showed that the early post transplant period is a good time to try to introduce vaccines and immunotherapy. Um, and that we also identified a unique population of relatively inactive or quiet T-cells. The more technical term is exhausted or senescent T-cells, and that having more of those was associated with relapse after transplant. So They're just too tired to do their
1: job, potentially. Excuse me? They're just too tired to do their job, potentially.
0: Yeah, exactly. Mm
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, sorry I didn't mean to interrupt because this is all amazing.
0: <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, so that I, I that that's um, I think a pretty good recap of uh, the work that we've done to date.
1: Mhm, and it's amazing because and I want to ask a question too because when you think about we've heard so much about precision medicine and going after specific genetic targets. Mm -hmm. Uh, for myeloma, and, you know, can we find either these point mutations like an NRAS or KRAS or something like that, or go after the genetic features that people have, like let's say somebody has a deletion 17 or something. Mm -hmm. But it seems to be more comprehensive than that, that it might not just be those factors. It might have a large part to do with the immune system status, like you're saying, after transplant, how robust are those T cells, and
0: mm-hmm.
1: what's your opinion on trying to get to truly personalized medicine?
0: Oh, I think that the ultimate personalized medicine would be training your own immune system to get rid of your myeloma, um, and that would be beneficial if if we can identify the right way to to do this. Um, and it's sort of the holy grail of cancer immunotherapy is if you can establish mm-hmm. that within a person, then you would have um, sort of like if you get a vaccination um, against uh, hepatitis or the flu or something like that, um, where if you have an immune system that's intact and receptive to a vaccine, for instance, I'm not saying that vaccines are necessarily have to be the, the one and only approach, but using that as an example, if you can develop an effective vaccine, you could potentially help, train a patient's immune system to recognize their tumor and to keep it under control for a very long time. Um, So that would be the ultimate form of personalized medicine.
1: Well, I love the idea of that because a lot of these immunotherapies, too, don't have the long-term side effects that some of the chemotherapies do, or even if you could reduce the burden with chemotherapy and then just maintain forever when you have this lower Burden with the immune system—that would be amazing as well.
0: Right, and those are some of the things that are are going to be coming up in in the next few years as we develop better um, uh, approaches. You know, as we understand more about the best way to vaccinate people, and and the, really the next step is going to be how are we going to combine this with other treatments to get the best response possible.
1: Mhm. So a question about that. I know you, earlier you mentioned that you're working primarily right now to look at patients post-transplant, but what you're saying in general is that this approach could be used for all types of patients, transplant or not, but that might be your initial focus?
0: Yes, that's correct, be, because um, the, the patient population that I see on a day-to-day basis are patients who have had a transplant. Um, and so they're the ones who I have... Uh, that are readily accessible to contribute to our research program by donating blood and bone marrow samples. And so that's going to be the initial focus. And then once we've done, um, you know, a sufficient amount of work on our our proposed projects, then the the goal would be to extend this to the broader um, population of patients who also don't have a... don't undergo transplantation because I think that ultimately a lot of these immune signatures will be relevant in those patients as well. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't you um, first share? It sounds like you're looking at three different components of the immune system. Uh, So maybe you want to walk through those, and we might come back to some other questions like what you've noticed in these patients Mm post-transplant. but map it out for us, what you're looking for in trying to d- create this immune system signature.
0: So what, what our plan is, is to um, compare how, again, how the immune systems of myeloma patients undergoing transplant change over time to see if there's a distinct immune biomarker signature indicative of disease status. And to the initial studies that we're going to pursue to to look at this are as follows. So the first step is we're going to look at um, lymphocyte or also white, also known as white blood cell subpopulations and function. So what this will involve is taking blood and bone marrow samples um, at relevant time points, and, and the major time points would be before transplant, after transplant when patients are having their standard Disease restaging, which is usually around three months, and then um, down the line at time of relapse, or for patients who don't relapse, at sort of similar um, longer-term out um, time points, and and then we're going to look at um, the the white blood cells using initially a technique called flow cytometry. We make if if um, we find that some interesting results. We may actually pursue more sophisticated tests, but initially flow cytometry is the test that we're going to use. And what that allows us to do is to see the relative balance of each subtype of white blood cell and also to see if the individual subtypes express new markers over time and how the profiles of patients who do um, well versus those who don't do as well are different. And this type of immune profiling may help us identify patients that are at higher risk for early relapse. So that, that, that's the first part. Um, the next part is a little bit more um, esoteric in terms of you know deep dive scientific stuff. And that, that part is looking at the T-cell diversity of, of a patient over time. Um, and what that is is it's again it 's a much more detailed study of what the T cells are actually recognizing, and with this type of test, we can measure the relative number of T cells that recognize certain antigens and and we can also see if there's the appearance or disappearance of specific cells over time and how those changes relate to disease status, so for instance, is there a certain and and we call these specific T-cells clones. So a cl- one clone will recognize one type of antigen and then another clone will recognize another. And looking at the relative balance, we could potentially see if over time that patients who do well develop new clones that might be identifying myeloma targets versus patients who don't do well who who lose these certain clones over time. Or yeah you know, you never know what you're going to find. It, it actually could be different. It could be the, the opposite of that. And so that that's what the 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 second step is, is to try to get a better understanding of how these clones are, are shifting over time, the T cell clones that recognize markers on myeloma cells potentially. And then. If,
1: Can I ask you a, a question before you sure. go to number three?
0: Sure.
1: Um, so when you're saying certain clones are appearing or not appearing, are you talking about something like, let's say, somebody starts out with a 414 clone? And then you're watching for T cells going after that clone, and then they develop deletion 17p later, and you're assessing: Are there T cells that are going after deletion 17 in addition to the four? four is that what you're talking about, or you, uh, no, no, that, those, that's something?
0: actually it's it's actually a separate issue. So um, it's oh, possible okay. it's possible that patients with certain clones that have these um, cytogenetic changes that you've mentioned will have mm-hmm. distinct markers. Um, But Mm -hmm. as far as I know, there there are no studies that really show um, direct correlations of certain antigens matched to certain cytogenetic changes. The clones that I'm talking about are using this um, T-cell repertoire type of test. We can um, measure um, what these cells are seeing and how they change over time, how they rise and fall potentially or how they rise and sustain or how they just fall off. And we can correlate mm-hmm. that with disease outcome, but that's again that's separate from cytogenetic changes and that and it, and what they what they're actually recognizing um, that would be the the next step of this test would be to try to figure out the best test to try to figure out what they're actually seeing because sometimes um, that that that's the that's the tricky part because um, if you have a marker or antigen that's very commonly known, we can figure out sometimes what the T cells are actually seeing um but if it's a new marker that's a distinct marker let's say on a new um myeloma cell uh then we wouldn't know that beforehand, and so it would be hard to say what exactly it is um identifying but but if but if we see certain patterns we could make um some correlative uh, uh assumptions that maybe that's beneficial. Again, that's going to have to bear out over time and we're going to need a lot more information on how best to, to um, you know, look at that type of data. Mm-hmm. And
1: you're looking for markers like CD38 or BCMA or something, a marker like that. Is that what you're looking for, or yeah, I mean those those would totally be some different. of the more
0: common markers that we would look at. But you know, cancer cells as they evolve over time can acquire different markers, and it, and um, I think we'll probably end up talking about the the concept of neoantigens later. But that that's where that comes in.
1: Mm, okay. Well, I'm learning a lot. <laughs> Okay, so you were talking about the second um, T cell diversity of a patient, and what what it's recognizing. Is there anything else on that before you want to move to the next
0: section? Uh, no, I think um, I think uh, we've covered that pretty well. And then the third part of the uh, of this um, part of the proposal is to look at um, a subpopulation of cells called myeloid derived suppressor cells or MDSCs. Um, All our terminology is pretty jumbled in medicine, but um, what these cells are are cells that they they dampen the immune response, and they've been shown to be increased in the blood and bone marrow of patients with active myeloma, um, and, again, these cells suppress T cell responses. And um, there was one study that showed that... um, the negative immune effect by these myeloid-derived suppressor cells can be reversed with a combination of revlimid and immune checkpoint blockade. Um, so we're oh, gonna oh. we're good, and we're gonna look at this in in this patient population um, to see how you know the pattern of these cells in the blood and the bone marrow. And these studies are gonna be done in collaboration with one of my colleagues here at Memorial, Dr. Alexander Lesokin.
1: Okay, well, that's really interesting. And I would like to ask some more follow-up questions about that because um, there were studies, you know, earlier with Revlimid and checkpoint inhibitors that had some some issues. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: I'm just curious about how you go about doing that.
0: Well, what I was saying is that that is um, one – that was one study that showed that that could overcome the negative effect of these mm-hmm. cells, but um, – you know, the whole issue of treating patients with Revlimid and checkpoint blockade, as you know, last summer, things were yeah. halted because of the toxicity signal. And we, we, as as of now, there's still a lot of unknowns about how we're going to fit these treatments into the myeloma um, treatment regimens. Um, but I think the the point of this is to again, see what the patterns are with the myeloid-derived suppressor cells in these patients that we're going to study, and then also uh, longer term to figure out other ways to inhibit their negative effect on the immune response. What those are is still to be determined.
1: I see. So you're saying that there's higher levels of these MDSC cells in myeloma patients, which means it keeps, it dampens the immune response even more when you have more, is that correct? Correct. Okay. And you're trying to figure out a way to reverse that. So they're just normal, at normal levels, because you want the immune system to, to respond. Right. And fight the cancer. Okay, those are three important um, components. It just sounds like you're looking at a holistic approach, not just one part of the immune system. You're looking at it. It's so complicated.
0: It, it is extremely complicated. Sweet miracle. And why, <laughs> right. And that's why, um, you know, if, if if we knew what the most important and most relevant components are then you know we would be more focused in our studies, but just because there really is not as much known in a comprehensive way, um, we want to start broad and or as broad as possible, and 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 then see where the the studies take us, and then and then try to hone in once we get more information.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, and going back to what you were talking about earlier, when you're studying patients who are post transplant. What are the most broad things that you've noticed about the immune system for those patients? And um, talk about neoantigens a little bit later.
0: Okay. Um, so we did a, a study where we um, had myeloma patients and and did some of these studies that I mentioned um, on, on those patients. And um, what we've seen is that at least in terms of the immune system, um, that, one, the early post-transplant period um, might be a good time to introduce vaccines and other immune-based treatments for um, several factors. It, it's a little bit technical, so I'm not going to go into that. But it basically, there's a it's a receptive environment where um, you can, for instance, if you bring in a vaccine-based treatment, uh, you could potentially generate a more effective immune response. Um, we've also shown that one of the concerns was that in patients with cancer and specifically with myeloma is that if you're going to do cell-based treatments like vaccines from a patient, um, are, are their cells actually functional? Are they, can, can you use those cells and, and use and um, generate effective therapies or are the cells not functional? And so what we showed was that we could grow dendritic cells from the blood of of patients with myeloma and also that the T cells that we isolated before and after transplant retain many of their basic functions so that so that you have a component where you can take the dendritic cells to make vaccines and that, that they're that the cells that are in patients can respond to some degree. Um, and then In terms of the immune response and relapse, we identified, um, as I mentioned earlier, a a unique population of relatively inactive or quiet or sleepy T cells, and that this is associated with relapse after transplant. And we also observed that there's an increased number of regulatory T cells, which is a type of white blood cell that, similar to the myeloid-derived suppressor cells, can dampen immune responses. Um, and then we also showed that there was decreased natural killer, or NK cells, which, again, that this is another type of white blood cell that plays a role in fighting tumors and cells infected with viruses. And um, so having increased numbers of regulatory T cells and decreased numbers of NK cells are both associated with relapse after transplant. So those, those are mm-hmm. some of the preliminary findings that we've, we've found in the post-transplant setting. And, and I think that okay. these findings.
1: Yeah.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead.
1: No, go ahead. No, go ahead.
0: Uh, I was just going to say that I think that these findings again underscore the role of the um, immune system in in providing some degree of benefit to prevent relapse.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I was talking to um, another immunologist about transplant. He was saying, like you were, that. It's a, kind of an ideal time because your immune system's regenerating, and so it's and proliferating. So I like that you're looking at this time period. And another question: Are your dendritic cells vaccine personalized? Like then, so that kind of made me think the way you were talking about it that you're personalizing these vaccines for people when you are saying you're testing them to see if their T cells are exhausted or not.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or are they yeah. just are they more like off the shelf kind of?
0: No, they're not off the shelf. So the, the vaccine, um, dendritic cell vaccines that we've been doing are, um, are personalized where we take um, either stem cells from their um, bone marrow, which for this transplant population is, is relatively simple because when they undergo their standard stem cell collection, we take a portion of that and we can make dendritic cells either that way or the alternative ways to to get blood from patients and you can use the blood to grow up dendritic cells in the lab also mm-hmm. um and then so um it's personalized in the sense that the dendritic cell that's being given back is the patient's own mm-hmm. cells and then on top oh. of that the um the vaccine product itself it depends on how you're what what's going into the product but it's um it's unique in the sense that, so for instance, um, it might make sense if I talk about two of the vaccine studies that we have. So one sure. is yeah, sure. Yeah, the first one is an in house study using the longer Hans type dendritic cells that I mentioned earlier, which are the more potent type, um, at least in studies in our lab. And um, with this particular vaccine, what we're doing is um, we're introducing the the full length of the antigen, so I remember I talked about how you can yeah, do it either mm-hmm. with the fragment or the full length, so what we 're doing is we 're introducing the full length of three different antigens that have been identified in myeloma cells, and so then these are given to the these are um, introduced into the so how it works is so a patient gets their stem cells collected, we take a portion of that, and we grow up the lcs or the longerhan cells and then when the cells are um, mature, what we do is we give them the The three antigens, and then what happens is that the cell takes up after it 's taken up those three antigens it it does a lot of complicated in the cell type of um, manipulation of these uh, proteins and then shows bits and pieces of multiple bits and pieces to the immune system and it, it's it 's kind of a random process so that even from one patient what parts of the proteins are shown on one cell within the vaccine can be different from another. And so in a mm-hmm. sense, this is a very personalized process where the patient's own cell is processing this and then showing what it decides it's going to show. And then that, that's given back as a vaccine. Um, this study just completed accrual earlier this year, and we're currently doing the immune response assessments and hope to have some results soon. So, so oh. you can see how that this is an personalized vaccine. Um, yeah. And then, really. the, yeah. And then the second study we have is a dendritic cell myeloma fusion vaccine. And and some of the listeners may have heard of this already, but this is a multi-center national trial conducted through the Blood and Marrow Transplant Clinical Trials Network or BMTCTN. Um, for those who are interested, the study number is 1401, um, uh, but it is close to accrual. But if people are just interested in reading about it, um, I've been fortunate to serve as one of the national study chairs, along with David Avigan from Beth Israel in Boston, whose group did the initial oh, studies great. leading. Yeah, he did. His group did the initial studies leading to this multi-center trial, and then our our other um, national co-chair is uh, Nina Shaw from the University of California at San Francisco. Um, as as I mentioned, this study recently closed to accrual, and patients in the study are going through the treatment process. So it's still too early to comment on the results. But this vaccine, again, is a personalized vaccine where um, when patients are enrolled and for patients who are enrolled on the study, um, before they started treatment, they underwent um, a tumor harvest. So basically, the myeloma cells from their bone marrow were taken up. And then those cells are later, when the vaccine is given, um, fused with dendritic cells that are grown up from the patient's blood. And then this this type of vaccine is is different from what I mentioned a little bit earlier, where instead of um, predetermining which antigens you want to target, you're actually just taking the entire myeloma cell and letting it fuse with a dendritic cell, and then that's the vaccine product that you give back. And so what this vaccine product has is potentially every marker that your tumor has. And wow, so you can see the advantage of that potentially, and so that yes. that, that study uh-huh. is is um again it, it 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 enrolled extremely quickly and closed through accrual uh i think last month, and um we're eagerly awaiting the results
1: That's amazing. Are you going to have ash results do
0: you know uh no, not this year
1: mm. And would something, some, this, this is kind of a side question, but, but would this approach work? I know you say that post-transplant is a really optimal time, but would it work for patients who are in remission and just kind of want to extend their remission?
0: Um, I think that that's the next step, is to figure out the best way to time this. Um, I, I think that it's it's a logical extension of the studies that we've done. Um, again, you mentioned earlier that when you you had spoken with a transplanter who mentioned the potential advantages of introducing a vaccine during the post-transplant period because of the immune system recovering and a lot of cells dividing, and potentially you could skew a response in a beneficial way. So you would, you would lose that component of the, of the vaccine administration. But I think that if, if we learn a little bit more about vaccinations and the way to help boost them, um, you could potentially, you could give a vaccine in almost any kind of setting and get a response. So I think that's something that's going to be coming mm. down the line.
1: Yeah, that's really – it's just a miracle what's happening right now in my loma, in my opinion. It, the smart people like you are really moving the field. So we're just so grateful for all you're doing. It's amazing. Oh, um, thank you. Well <laughs> – So you're looking at these three components of the immune system, and then you were going to do some um, DNA and RNA sequencing or whole exome sequencing to find certain things. Can you explain Mm -hmm. that? And then you may want to explain neoantigens because you might be mentioning that term.
0: Right. So I I think um, it makes most sense to explain what a neoantigen is. So um, when cancer cells divide to make new cancer cells, they're very prone to developing a lot of mistakes or mutations. And when this happens, some of the mutations alter the normal amino acid sequence of peptides in a cell. So the amino acids are 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 what provide the instruction to the cell of how to make a protein. It's like um, a guide. So when... Mm-hmm. But when there's a new, when, when new m- mutations occur, a peptide or antigen is converted from its normal um, status to a new or neo antigen, And neoantigens can serve as very specific immune targets because they're completely new. There's nothing else in the body that's similar to that. And mm-hmm. um, the presence of neoantigens in cancer cells and their absence in normal cells um, makes them again very attractive targets for cancer therapy because you have almost basically eliminated the, you've in- increased the specificity and you've eliminated the potential for off-target effects. Um, right. And and again, this directing the immune system toward um, neoantigens offers a, a new level of patient and tumor specificity that again might translate into improved patient outcomes. And and so what we're interested in doing is, and this is the second part of the proposal, is to um, look at patients who relapse, and when they relapse, tr- try to get good bone marrow samples so that we can isolate their myeloma or plasma cells and sequence them to look for neoantigens. And then mm-hmm. once we've identified neoantigens, do a screen to figure out which of those that we identify might be the best targets for a vaccine, and then to ultimately carry that over into a vaccine therapy for patients, at, you know, who've relapsed. So that that that's the
2: okay, second that's
1: part. Amazing. Yeah, what a great strategy. That's truly amazing. And then you could just customize it for that for that patient for whatever neoantigens their body is creating post relapse. Correct. Yeah. Amazing. Um, When you're looking at, in this first initial phase where you're looking at patients post-transplant, you sort of separated that amount between um, early relapse versus late relapse. So maybe you want to go into some of the um, study methods and why you're looking for patients with less than two-year relapse or greater than four-year relapse and how you divide people out and then um, how many many patients are you looking for or samples are you going to study as well.
0: Okay. Uh, Again, the the goal of the study is to compare the immune profile or landscape of myeloma patients uh, undergoing transplant at key time points to identify immune biomarker signatures of disease status and to optimize our chances of detecting differences in immune signals that are characteristic of disease outcome. We wanted to initially focus on patients at clinical extremes Um, and So we decided, I mean, it's it's somewhat arbitrary um, to have a cutoff, but we decided that patients who um, relapse less than two years after transplant versus those who remain progression-free more than four years would be a pretty good um, way to separate them. And, and again, this is simply a way to try to um, see if, if there's a, more easily identifiable signal if we choose these two patient populations. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if the, the current numbers are that if you have a patient who undergoes a transplant and then goes on Revlib maintenance, which is standard at most centers, then the mm-hmm. average progression-free survival is a little over four years. And um, so that also helped guide us in terms of how we were picking our, our time points. Um, and, again, we'll be using blood and bone marrow samples from before transplant at best response after transplant. Again, that's usually about at the three-month mark where we staging is done, and then at the time of progression or relapse. Um,
1: mm-hmm. so,
0: so that's what we're going to be doing.
1: And if you're looking for patients who are out four years and are relapsing after that, are you just going back to your existing patients and trying to find patients who qualify for that section, asking them if they want to participate, or are you just doing it from here on out? You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. Well, for patients who are here, um, I, I'm, the goal is to to follow them for as long as possible, and then to capture them even if they relapse farther than you know farther out than four years. Um,
1: so so and we, if somebody, we haven't no okay.
0: Sorry, I was just going to say we haven't put a cap on when we're going to stop um sample acquisition as long as a patient is willing to provide a sample.
1: And can somebody from um not at Memorial Sloan Kettering contribute to this research?
0: Uh, f- for for now, um that would be very difficult because um getting samples um well, the, the logistics of just getting samples would be difficult because there's special mm-hmm. tubes and things that we need, and there's also processing and getting the samples here within a certain period of time. Um, yeah. So I would say that for now, it's really going to be based on patients who are here.
1: Yeah, and you have a lot of patients who are there, so you should be fine.
0: <laughs> yeah, we do see a fair number of patients. Uh, oh, and then I forgot you—you um, you did ask in terms of how many patients we we're going to look at. Um mm-hmm. At the at the outset, at the beginning, we're gonna try to look at thirty to fifty patients in each of the two groups, um, mm-hmm. and then you know we'll see what we see with those results, and then um, go from there in terms of um, pursuing additional patients if if, if needed.
1: Mhm. And then how long will it take? Will you have to wait the four years, or you'll have this before because you'll be able to look at patients who have are out four years already.
0: Um, we do. Uh, we do have some samples from patients like that because um, mm-hmm. my our practice here has been to um, when patients, if patients are willing to contribute to the to the research program, we we sign them up and they and we collect samples along the way, and so we have a fair mm-hmm. number of patients for whom we already have samples, and so clearly we would want to take advantage of that. And for when we start doing these studies, we would start with the ones that are already banked. And then we're also, in addition to that, as patients come through, we're collecting samples prospectively in real time. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we'll continue to do that for, you know, for as long as we can to try to really get the best samples and to, um, you know, see if we can, uh, you know, see a clear signal.
1: Right. So, and usually, faster study results are better than than study results. I know sometimes in myeloma it's getting tricky because when you're running these studies, you might not have results for 10 years, and and that's why they're looking for other things like minimal residual disease or something to be early markers or indicators. But right. as you're testing these samples, how long do you want it to take basically to do the analysis? On the number of patients that you're looking for, so you kind of have a, an idea of where you want to go from there.
0: Uh, well, I would I would think that within 12 to 18 months we'll have preliminary re- results that would help us figure out, um, you know, what we need to do next and if we need to extend certain aspects of the study. But I think that we'll have some signal within a year, year and a half. That that that's mm-hmm. my that's my hope at least. You never know where yeah. research will take you, but
1: <laughs>
3: yeah.
1: Well, I'm amazed by what you all do. And then will you include um well, it sounds like the dendritic cell vaccines at Memorial Sloan Kettering are closed, but would you do anything related to those vaccines on these same patients or that would be a completely different body of work?
0: That that would that would be a different um different project. project maybe. Um you know, yeah. we do we do envision that a vaccine-based approach, either dendritic cell or other formulation, could be used to prime or boost patient's immune responses. Um, again, probably in combination with other other therapies. Um, but this particular study would be separate from that. It, it would hopefully be informative so that we could figure out, okay, if we're going to give a vaccine to this type of patient with this type of immune profile, we would probably want to tweak the therapy in a certain way. I mean, that would be the best-case scenario if we could actually really, um, you know, tailor therapy.
1: Yeah, it's totally amazing. It's just completely amazing to me what's happening and and the ability to look that closely at an individual patient and really target timing and therapies and staging and all of that to an individual. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Um, a um, last couple of questions uh how will you use the funds, and then how would you integrate this with HealthTree? and then I'll open it up for uh, just some short caller questions
0: um so the The funds will be used to perform the two aims of the study that I've described, and you know those costs are um, you know sample acquisition and processing research supplies, including costs related to sequencing and um, some salary support for the research technicians in the lab who are doing the actual work. And then in terms of um, how this might be integrated into HealthTree, um, it, upon validation you can envision that we would be able to um, include a biomarker, immune-based biomarker panel within the, the patient portal where you could um, use that in, as a complement to the other um, markers like cytogenetics and stage at diagnosis and um, other factors that have been validated to provide a more comprehensive snapshot of each patient's immune, um, each patient's unique myeloma disease profile, and that ultimately that might be a way to guide uh, patients toward the most
1: optimal therapy. Mm Mm-hmm amazing okay well i want to open it up for caller questions so if you have a question for dr chung you can call 347-637-2631 and press one on your keypad and we don't have a lot of time left i'm so sorry for that but there was so much to talk about and i have so many more questions so we might have to do a follow-up show as this progresses but it's truly amazing okay call 9836757 go ahead with your question
2: Hi Jenny, it's Dana Holmes. Thanks so much for taking my call. Appreciate it. Hi Dr. Chung, Hi. congratulations on being awarded um, an MCRI research grant. It's terrific. The work you're doing is so exciting. I'm actually Thank you. a Sloan Kettering. Yeah, I'm actually a Sloan Kettering patient, but I'm smoldering. So right now I'm under that watch and wait mode. Um, so who knows? Maybe someday I'll be crossing your path as well. Um, question to you. Is the work that you're doing with the immune system signature similar to what the Spanish group, myeloma group, research group has done to date?
0: Uh, I think that um, it's similar in the sense that they are looking at different subsets of the immune system, although in their work they um, did not do some of the things that we've been looking at more recently. Um and you know I, they may be actually doing that work and just haven't um, published mm-hmm. it yet. But <laughs> a lot of people are interested in really understanding the immune system in myeloma, so that we can develop better treatments. And so I wouldn't be surprised if they're doing it. They just haven't published all oh, the exact same things.
2: Absolutely, I'm I'm thrilled to see that because honestly, I think that that's where our answer may lie. Um, You know, these neoantigen vaccines are very intriguing as well, and there's actually two. Well, there's one that MD Anderson is actually developing for smoldering patients, and Dana-Farber is going to be as well. I don't know if they're similar, different. I'm not quite sure because I'm still trying to understand what that is yet. So do you foresee Sloan-Kettering doing something along those lines for smoldering myeloma patients? Because I'm thinking earlier in the disease, the disease Perhaps is less complex, would it be more um, specific would it be more uh, you know would it be more successful in the earlier lines of disease
0: right, and I think you raised some very, very um important points, and I think that it, it's it's it makes sense to pursue um, some form of of therapy in that setting. I think that we're still trying to figure out the best approach, and mm-hmm. um, we have had discussions of of doing a, a, a study in um, a, a vaccine-based study. It's just we haven't figured out exactly how we're going to do that because we want to um, get as much information possible before we launch into this because, as you can for, imagine. For
2: smoldering patients?
0: Right, right. Oh, can,
2: that's exciting. Right. Okay. Yeah.
0: So as you can imagine there's a lot that goes into designing and oh, a clinical trial. So mm-hmm. um and but, I would but imagine it,
2: what you're gonna learn from this study that you could then hopefully transfer into the smoldering population. Okay.
0: Right, right, exactly.
2: That's exciting. Okay. Um you know, I'm I'm already on board with uh, the research and, and banking everything at Sloan Kettering. Anytime I get blood draws, they because t- I've signed every th- every pay- every <laughs> research study that I could possibly sign at this point. So you guys definitely have some bankable, um, you know, data on me already. So that's exciting to to hear. And just I don't want to take up all the time, but one last question that I'm really just trying to understand a little bit better, and it has to do with T cell exhaustion.
3: Mm-hmm. I guess is
2: the term that's being used and and i found it interesting that you're that you that you explained that those immune suppressor cells seem to be more present after a stem cell transplant so is that because part of the immune system is either getting a bump up or being addition, having additional damage done to it let's say perhaps due to the alkylating alky, alky, alkylating agents like melphalan and the cytotoxins am am okay. i uh, Even so, conceptually understanding any of this,
0: um, the the immune suppressor cells, like the myeloid derived suppressor cells and the regulatory T cells that I mentioned, they're not necessarily higher at after transplant for everyone. What what I um, meant to convey, if I didn't do well, so you might properly.
2: have. I I just yeah. probably didn't understand it. So. Yeah.
0: Uh, all I was uh, the the point was that um, the in patients who relapse. We've noticed, oh. and, and other groups have also have noticed that there's a higher fraction of regulatory T cells mm-hmm. and that that might be contributing to the immune dysfunction that, mm-hmm. again, might be contributing to relapse. Mm-hmm.
2: Would, would the, the – I mean, obviously, stem cell transplant is standard of care, and until something better comes along, I understand that. It remains standard of care, but is it something that – a patient who is either newly diagnosed or someone like in my shoes that I have a hopefully knock on wood a little bit more time to to hold off on actual treatment to to think about using those DNA damaging type drugs to perhaps preserve some of these important immune cells
0: right so it's it, it's a complicated situation, and you know um, we we ha we don't have direct tests comparing the the impact of different treatment types on the immune cells. Because as you know, a lot of times we use combination therapy. So so sort of delving through that and figuring out is it this drug or this drug that's causing more immune dysfunction dysfunction in patients who actually have immune dysfunction based on some, you know, screening that we might do in on in the research setting. That that's hard to say. Um what we but it, it's possible and mm-hmm. um Again, the other thing that you brought up is that it, you know when myeloma progresses from the precursor state to active disease, mm-hmm. there is loss of immune um, function. And right. so your, your point is well taken that if we can develop interventions at an earlier stage where, the, where someone's immune system is more intact and potentially more receptive to an immune-based treatment, you might mm-hmm. have a better result.
2: Mm-hmm. So if you were to develop and move along with these neoantigens or any vaccine trial for smoldering patients, would, uh, it, would it be limited to just your patients and Dr. Lesorkins or would it be open to all of the myeloma group at Sloan-Kettering?
0: Oh, if, if if when we open studies for myeloma, it's open to all you know okay. all patients who are eligible. Okay, because I was going to make the, the phone
2: call today and start transferring my care.
0: <laughs> no, no, no. Any if, if you're if you're eligible otherwise based on the the, the basic um, criteria for a study, mm-hmm. you you can get you can get the the treatment here.
2: Okay, great. Well, Doctor Chung, thank Thanks, you for great. your time. Thank you for your research, and Jenny, thank you for the platform as always.
1: Oh yeah, thank you, Dana. Okay, Thank we'd you. like to. We have two other couple quick questions. If you have it just a few minutes more, two five eight two six eight four. Go ahead with your question.
4: Um, hi, my name is Jessica, and I am a patient at Memorial. And I opted not to do the transplant, um, but I am MRD negative status right now. Um, I just never hear anything really about you know. It's always about the stem cell transplant, and I'm just wondering process if you were, um, you know, MRD negative.
0: If I'm understanding the question correctly, you're asking, should you have a transplant if you're MRD negative or not?
4: Yeah, like how, you know, should I go, you know, I I did see um, someone about the transplant, but then I opted not to do it. Mm -hmm. And um, after that, after the fact, I reached the MRD negative status and I've had another bone marrow Which is negative, also. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's been about a year now, and um, you know I feel great. I don't feel you know sick at all. So I'm just you know you just never see research with it with the non-transplant.
0: Right. So what what we know is that um, reaching MRD negative status is a good thing, and then in general, patients who achieve a deeper response, especially the deepest response that we have, based on current tools is the mm-hmm. MRD negativity that the likelihood of a of a better outcome is increased. Whether or not that is enhanced yeah. with a transplant once you've already achieved MRD negative status is still um, not completely known. Um, okay. that so I, I think that ultimately that is a discussion that you're going to have to have with your, your myeloma physician myeloma. about the potential pros and cons. And I would say that at the very least that um, – have have you already had your stem cells collected?
4: Yes, I did. I did all everything I was supposed to do in the beginning, yes. Yeah.
0: Okay. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you at least okay. want to, we, we recommend that to all patients who are potentially transplant eligible because even if you right. don't pursue a transplant up front, you want that as a potential option in the future
1: in case you need it. In case, case I
4: needed need, it at some point.
1: Right. right. Exactly. Yeah.
4: Okay. All right. All right. Well, thank okay, you very much. Great. You're very informative, yes. Yeah.
1: Thank you so much for your question. Okay, one more call, 209-9890. Go ahead with your
3: question. Good morning, and thanks very much, Jenny. Um, I've kind of gotten lost, possibly, but uh, could you talk a little bit about We know that myeloma mutates and uh, changes over time, but do individuals' immune systems mutate or not mutate but change characteristics in terms of, uh, suddenly developing a, a pool of exhausted cells or um, different types of, of white cells uh, so, that it, so that you need to continually update on what's going on with a person's immune system or is that a static thing? Once you've got a fix on a person's immune characteristics, uh, is that good to go for a period of time?
0: Right so that that's the that's the goal of the study is to really look at this in more detail to 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 figure that out. Um, what, what I can tell you is that in, in some of the patients that we've already looked at that there are some patients who it looks like even before they start transplant that their immune systems are kind of pooped out or exhausted, and that over time they they remain that way, and those happen to be some of the patients who've relapsed. Um, we need more patients and more numbers to really validate this um, because there is some variability. Every once in a while you'll see someone whose immune system looks pooped out with more exhausted cells, but they have had a great response and they're in a good category. So that that's really, that, uh, that really um, emphasizes the fact that we need to look at more patients to, to get a more complete look at, at how things are changing and what that actually means over time. Uh, thank you. Sure. You're welcome. Yeah,
1: thank you. Um, Dr. Chung, this has just been very enlightening, and we're just so appreciative for all the work you're doing. We're just thrilled to be able to support it and hope you can come to your conclusions quickly. We're so excited to learn what you're learning.
0: Well, I think we're all on the same page, and we want to get um, some fast results and so that we can move on and develop better treatments for for myeloma patients. And again, thank you very much for having me and for the
1: generous support. Well, we're we're thrilled at what you're doing. And we're so grateful that you think about myeloma every day for us. So thank you so much. And to all our listeners and supporters from the Myeloma Crowd Research Initiative, again, we encourage you to share this with your family and friends and people who love you and want you to live longer with multiple myeloma um, we encourage you to listen in next time for our next Myeloma Pride Radio Program and learn more about the MCRI projects and also how this research can benefit you. Thanks for listening.